Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This is a free little piece, 15 minutes of a recent episode to encourage you to sign up to Under the Skin on Luminary. And what could be more encouraging than this conversation I had with Matt Stoller, Director of Research at the American Economic Liberties Project, a contributor to the YouTube show Breaking Points, author of Goliath, the 100-year war between monopoly power and democracy, democratic Washington insider who speaks openly and honestly, plainly and transparently about the complexity of modern party politics. He also used to do a TV show with me on FX in America. Don't worry, no one did. If you listen to Under the Skin on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. They really help others find us. Here's one. Lindsay Newman says, I've just joined Luminary. Sorry for the late arrival. Fucking fantastic. Oh, swearing. Thank you so much for bringing these podcasts to the many. You are showing up in the most important time of my life. Lindsay, thank you. In this part of our conversation with Matt... We talk about revolution and my strong belief that you cannot solve the complex problems that we are currently experiencing within the system that created them. And Matt is very honest and open about that. Of course, he's a a Democrat Party insider, so he believes that reform is, you know, that reform can save the world. But, you know, I don't believe that, but we didn't get upset about it. He also says that the bureaucracies we currently have are slow by design, but they ain't necessary. He talks about the Federal Reserve printing nine trillion six hundred years worth of money in the span of ten years and what that's done to the American economy. And he also significantly says US policymakers only took COVID seriously when it started to affect the stock market. How does that form our reality when the financial reality is more significant than a medical or social reality? These are the kind of questions that are raised in this segment of Under the Skin. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. I feel that we have to do something somewhat radical Matt and I don't know why someone as um, bold in their thinking and as articulate in uh, in their communication as you would assume that it has to be sort of housed within the two legal entities that you that you've described well so this is a really good point I and mean, I think the radical piece that's sort of drained out of um, uh, US politics Western politics presumably but US politics more is um, the metaphysical question of, of, um, you know, Judeo-Christian, you know, ethical, the ethical foundations of the American state are, were religious. And, um, you know, and, and that, I mean, I think people, when they don't have a, when people don't have a metaphysical language to communicate with each other, they create cults. And I think that a lot of the culture warring that you see is imbuing like traditional, like, sanctification over political figures. Like if you look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, what people were saying about her was effectively making her a saint, right? All the religious iconography, the same thing's true. Like on the democratic side, you see a huge amount of sanctification of political, of, you know, cults of personality, basically. And I think you see that on the right somewhat as well. Um, I would say, you know, when I talk about like the turgid nature and the slow nature, like it's, it's a very, it's very exciting intellectually. But I will say that, the reason it's so slow, there's nothing inherently slow about bureaucracies. We happen to have bureaucracies that are slow by design right now. The reason is because the uh, Federal Reserve has been printing, I'd say like, what is it? Something like since the financial crisis, they printed about $9 trillion. Which was a, a friend of mine wrote a book called um, 
the Lords of Easy Money about the Federal Reserve. And he says they printed 600 years of money within the span of 10 years or something like that. And when you do that, what happens is the culture becomes one on which commerce is a bad. Commerce is a big part of human of human society, right? Always has been. Commerce becomes less about doing things, building things that may solve a purpose and more about hustling over how to get get a financial asset that will escalate in value. And so right now we're in this very weird of the last 10 years since the financial crisis, or I say the first financial crisis, um, but it's the last you know, 12, 14 years since that financial crisis, we've been in this very strange period where people think about government and 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 commerce as and finance and stuff as like, how do we rush to get in on the next like asset valuation craze and nobody in government wants to do anything to affect that. So the the bureaucracy and then, I mean, Greece, you know, Podemos, all those guys, you know, Syriza, they all failed, right? Because they were caught in the same like financial trap, which is like, we need to sustain high financial like asset values or else people will lose the perception of what they have, like their perception that they have this wealth as opposed to actual wealth, which is, you know, what you were being able to make things that people need. And and so we're kind of like trapped right now in uh, in a financial system which has like excessively elevated asset values. And, and if we try to change anything that will lower asset values and cause a, like a reordering of our of our social hierarchies. And so when the Fed right now has to has to actually pop those asset bubbles and when the Fed does that, when you do see a financial like financial shakeup, right? then what you will see is like all of a sudden things can move really quickly. So I don't know if you were, you, I was paying attention to COVID in like January or February because I was, I'm obsessed with China and they were like, oh, there's this respiratory disease coming from China, January, February of 2020. There's this respiratory disease in China that's shutting down the country. And I'm like, that seems bad. And <laughs> I was out about it and being like stocking up on food and like medical stuff and like, you know, do, you know, doomer prep stuff. But the, the, the moment when policy elites in the U.S. took it seriously, and I'll never forget this, it's not when like public health people were like, oh, maybe this is a thing. It's when the stock market went down, right? It's like then people were like, oh, this is serious. People with money are actually like betting on this being a thing, right? And so that's how we determine in you want to get really like at the core of how we think about policy. It's all about whether the stock market is going up and down. And it's been that way since probably the 1980s. It's not inherent to capitalism. There is no such thing. I don't think there is such a thing as capitalism. I think we have lots of different systems over time. Things are very flexible, as you noted. Humans can live in all sorts of different ways. What the problem, like what FDR did in the 30s was not that he made the stock market go up or down. His main accomplishment was making the stock market irrelevant. And that's what we need to get to. We need to make these financial markets irrelevant to how we make social decisions. And right now they are so dominant because of the policies that the Federal Reserve, this kind of like the ultimate deep state institution has pursued to warp our economy and ultimately warp ourselves. And that's like, Amazing. you want it, you want the revolution, it's gonna happen, uh, an intellectual revolution, a peaceful you know, transition. It's going to happen when the, the this huge, like trillions and trillions of dollars of asset uh, bubbles, when that pops, we're going to have to reorient and reconfigure how we do things. That could be very dark. It could be very good. But that is like how I think about it. So what is creating the stagnation in the bureaucracy is this unreal moment of like bubble finance. 
That's beautiful. But yeah, so it's a, it's an abstraction in so, to some degree. Like when you talk about like six hundred years worth of uh, finance being pumped out in a ten year period, when you talk about a kind of a a constructed reality, an economic reality that's sort of to, to faith based and confidence based and requires our commitment in order to exist, and that that then begins to determine political decisions and uh, like a, a global level. You know, when you say, when one says from a metaphysical perspective, we're living in an illusion, we actually are. Our reality has been determined by sets of fictions that are no more real than particular sets of religious ideologies. And, and many of them are tethered to deep archetypal emotions that all human beings feel and are sort of somewhat ubiquitous, somewhat universal even, and perhaps therefore have a, a deeper reality and ought to, ought to have a greater influence when it comes to sort of making decisions for how to organise systems, how to organise the planet. Matt, I want to uh, guide you into the choppy waters in the, in the, of the wonderful world of conspiracy. Now, when like a... <laughs> so when like a, a, quick, a quick story oh about God. how to understand. So, so there's this is part of my book, and it's about the 1925 land bubble in Florida. Yes. By the way, every financial crisis involves Florida and Citibank. Those are the two things. That's what, that is one, one thing I learned in my book and when doing research. So there was this town there. Everybody was speculating on Florida real estate yes. and at, in the twenties and like people hadn't been deflating care if they were in Florida, like it just, they were just trading lots of land. And there was this one town called Nettie that became like a, there was speculative fervor and people were trading lots of land uh, and buying and selling it. And it turns out later on, people realized that Nettie didn't actually exist. <laughs> it's a great story because when you're when you have a lot of land in Nettie and someone is willing to buy it for a certain amount of money, even though it doesn't exist, even though the reference point doesn't exist, it still has value, mm. right? The the fraud has value until it doesn't, right? And that's what's weird about like a, a financial bubble is that things are based are frauds or they are just like completely disconnected from anything in reality, but they still have value as long as the fraud keeps going, as long as the Ponzi keeps going, and that's kind of like where we are. I think right now where a lot of things that people are like, this is crazy. This doesn't seem to make any sense. You know, you could look at like crypto or, or meme stocks or whatever it is. They're like, this is nuts, but it's like, it's true. It's nuts. But as long as the music keeps going, Right, people are going to keep dancing, and that's what's weird about like yes. this unreal finance. Anyway, so I, I just thought I'd make it like it's nice. Like it's good that you gave us a concrete example, and also it's sort of things like you know the non fungibles and all that stuff. It's not yeah. unprecedented. It's just the sort of a continuation of a of a, an economic ideal that's been imprinted for for you know yeah always because that's what well, a token is. Because I cut you off and you you were having a question about let's get into conspiracies. Yes, I do want to get into conspiracies, Matt. And don't try at this late stage to pretend to be polite because it's too late. You've barreled all <laughs> over my conspiracy questions in a, what seems to be a lilac shirt. <laughs> <laughs> So Sorry, I, I was I was actively being rude and by then pretending I wasn't. So it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> You've just said that nothing, even the financial system about around which we base our total ontology, is real. So what's a a, a, a little brash exchange between friends? This area of conspiracy theories, I, I suppose, why conspiracy theories? Like, let me give you some specific examples. During the time of the pandemic, people felt that there was a wealth transfer, and indeed there was the the pandemic was beneficial to the pharmaceutical industry. It was 
somehow beneficial to the government in terms of new regulations could be introduced and it sort of eased the passage for ideas such as um, you know uh, COVID passports and digital IDs and possibly even made things like social credit scoring a closer reality than they might otherwise have been. I'm certainly not interested in talking about the the nature of the coronavirus you know even though I've done loads of videos on the sort of Wuhan lab versus the wet market and those kind of things that, that sort of at least seem to me to be at least equally viable theories of the origin of, of the coronavirus. But what I am interested in is when crisis serves power and how power responds to it seems mendacious and at least not transparent. People, and when there's this general sense that power is so obtuse and inaccessible, it creates a sort of a climate where, you know, conspiracy theories seem more um, palpable and appealing. Now, when Edward Snowden, I had a conversation with Edward Snowden on here, and like he says, like, you know, look, look, you don't have to get into the lizards and the aliens or any of that stuff because here's what's happening. The NSA are stealing your data. These kind of like these, get like the, you know, centralized currencies are something that's been increasingly talked about. But like, you know, you're being observed in ways that are sort of would have been unthinkable decades ago. So I wonder what you feel about that last two years. I wonder how you feel power responded to it. And I wonder if you feel that that crisis was exploited and if, it, if there was a reckoning as part of this pandemic somehow. I mean, that's a really big question. Of and course. What do you think we're going to do on here? Yeah, I mean, I just want, I want very simple questions of addition. <laughs> all I can do. Um, are you nice? That's my next question. Are you a nice person? Yes or no? My favorite color is blue. Um, I would say the pandemic didn't do anything particularly for wealth and power. The policy response to the pandemic did what it did to wealth and power. Okay. And that policy response happened. I mean, we were, I was paying attention to this. Um, so I started a think tank called the American Economic Liberties Project in uh, January of 2020, so like right before the pandemic. And it was with a colleague who worked in Treasury uh, during the Obama administration. I worked in Congress. And we were both like, we think that we shouldn't have foreclosed on everyone. Let's start a think tank to spread the idea that maybe we shouldn't hurt people using government policy. We should try to address consolidated power. And the first, really the first thing that we did was, was in March, right, when the pandemic hit and the stock market crashed. And all of a sudden there were all of these people that couldn't pay their debts, corporations that couldn't pay their debts because their revenue was going to disappear. Um, and that would imply mass bankruptcies and lots of huge problems. Congress started debating something called the CARES Act. And the CARES Act was um, a, had three parts. And it was, it was in response to a crisis, right? The economy is going to like fall off a cliff because we have this, this pandemic and we don't know what this disease does. So we have to do three things. One, we have to make sure there's not a financial crisis. Okay. There was a run on, there was essentially a high level run on banks at the time. Two, people are going to be hurting. So we need to help them with expanded unemployment benefits and, um, and maybe even like cash checks to make sure that all the people that are laid off have some money. That was, this is in the US, every country handled it differently, but they all sort of thought about like, what, what do we do when you freeze the society? And the third piece is, how do you help ensure that the millions of small businesses that we have that are, you know, don't have a lot of cash, they don't have a lot of buffer, that they don't go out of business. And so the, the Congress debated these three things and come together and like took care of all of them in, in what's called the CARES Act. 
we were like Sarah and I, Sarah Miller's the person I started this organization with. We had both seen the first bailout in 2008 and we saw what happened when they said the men in suits really say you need to bail out Wall Street. And so we said, okay, do the small business aid, do the unemployment, but don't do the Wall Street bailout, right? Unless you put really strong strings on that. And there were some members like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders said, let's put some strings on this. But people were terrified, right? They were just terrified. And I don't just mean policymakers, like ordinary people were seeing you know, the stock market crash and, and they were seeing like everyone was scared. And so the CARES Act, you know, we came out and we said, don't do this. This is a bad idea. All the other nonprofit groups and like stakeholders in the in on the right and the left. Right. Everyone was like too panicked to even think about what was happening. If you're enjoying this conversation, join me over at Luminary on Apple Podcasts for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of Under the Skin.